If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 10, we will be concluding this great chapter of God's Word this morning as we look at verses 31 through 42. And as I said a couple weeks ago, John 10 has become one of my favorite chapters in John's Gospel, where we see this great proclamation of our Lord that He is the Good Shepherd. (laughs) This beloved verse by many, that the Lord is our Shepherd, referencing not only Psalm 23, where we sing sometimes at our church about the Good Shepherd, our Lord, who cares for us, leads us beside still waters, but we see Christ present Himself as the only way, as the door into the sheepfold. There's no other way that sheep are to enter in but through Him. He is the Good Shepherd, the true Shepherd of His sheep. And as we looked at last time, or the last couple times, we saw that He is also the one that preserves His sheep. As we saw in verses 28 through 29, He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hands." So we see not only the care of this good shepherd, but the preserving power of Christ who keeps his sheep, preserves them to the end, and will protect them from all false teachers, from wolves that will seek to come in and devour the sheep. He is the good shepherd that will ultimately lay down his life for them. But the last verse that we looked at, we only looked at six words last time in John's Gospel. In verse 30, we looked at this saying of our Lord, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. That He is not just um, one God of many, but He is one with the Father in essence, in perfection, in power. And as we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, He is very and eternally God. And we'll see the, the response of those that are listening to Christ this morning. We'll look at both the response of the people in verses 31 through 33, and then we'll look at Christ's response to them in verses 34 through 42. And we'll see this morning that those that hear Christ confess that He is one with the Father, they don't like this. <laughs> they don't like this idea of Jesus in his humanity, saying, I and the Father are one. They will accuse our Lord of blasphemy. As we read about this morning, they will pick up stones to stone him that in their unbelief, they want to snuff out the light of the world. They don't like this one who is exposing their sin, who is proclaiming that he is God incarnate. They hate the light. They do not want to come to the light And we'll see as we go through this passage that they want to kill our Lord and arrest Him for His claims. But we'll see this morning that as the Word incarnate, Christ is going to use both Scripture and His works to testify that He is who He says He is. He's not lying. He's not puffing Himself up. He really is the eternal Son of God. He's not merely a man. Although he is fully and truly man, he is also eternally and truly God. One with the Father in his substance, distinct in his person, and dwelling in Trinitarian beatitude from all eternity. This is the confession and proclamation of our Lord. And so what we're going to see today in the response of these Jews is both the greatness of their sin in trying to snuff out the light of the world and rejecting Christ, 
but we're also going to see the glory and grace of our Savior in proclaiming who He is. (laughs) In the midst of all this darkness and those that wish to kill Him, He's going to reveal who He is, that He is not only one with the Father, but the Father is in Him, and He is in the Father, this great mystery of our triune God. So I'm going to read the passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look at God's Word. I'm going to begin this morning at verse 22, just to give us a little bit of context as we uh, look at this passage. This is the Word of the Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand." My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We see in our verses today the response of those who were there. In verse 31, it says, The Jews then picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture, and scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in humble reliance upon you for everything. Not only for the breath that fills our lungs and the blood that courses through our veins, but for the power of your Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts and give us illumination into the things of your Word. We know that we could read these verses until we are blue in the face, but unless your Spirit empowers the proclamation of your Word and the reading and understanding of your Word, that, um, that it is um, words in the wind. 
And so we pray this morning that you would strengthen us by your Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, and that as we look this morning at the great truths of your Word, the great opposition to Christ as the incarnate Son of God, and the great truth of the triune God, that we would see this morning our need to trust in Him alone, we would see the greatness of our sin and misery, and we would run to Christ for refuge, our only hope in life and death. We pray that you would be with us this morning, and we pray and ask that you would strengthen us by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've seen throughout John's Gospel, as we've been going, we've seen various reactions to our Lord. We've seen reactions that have been positive, namely in the Samaritan woman and um, others throughout John's Gospel, where the Lord comes to these people and he reveals himself to them, he tells them who he is, and they respond with worship and gratitude. But we've also seen, as we've gone through John's gospel, the opposition that our Lord has faced. When he reveals who he is, people do not always respond with worship, but as we'll see in this passage, the people respond with rejection, with hatred, with a desire to kill our Lord. And so we've seen that as we've gone through John's gospel, whether you go all the way back to John chapter 2, where we see people rejecting Christ because he's not doing the signs that they want him to do, right? These sign seekers. Or you go to John chapter 5 and we see the legalism of the Pharisees that want to kill Christ because he's breaking their Sabbath laws. You go to John chapter 6, we see those that are wanting to set up Christ as an earthly king and not a heavenly one. And we see that they're rejecting that our, that our Lord came first in, in His humiliation and only then will be exalted. Or we see in John chapter 8 and 9 the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. They do not see the glory of Christ and therefore they reject Him. And so whether it's chapter 2, chapter 5, we see many times in John's gospel people rejecting Christ for who He is. And if we remember, this was all predicted in the first chapter of John's gospel where he says, this word came into the world that he made and the world rejected him. (laughs) He came to his own people and his own people rejected him. And so this is not, this shouldn't be a surprise to the readers of John's gospel, but it still should grip us with the hatred that these people have for the perfect son of God. And we see in verse 31, the response of these people to this proclamation of who Christ really is as being one with the Father, we see in verse 31 that their response is not worship, but picking up stones with which to stone him. Just as they did in John chapter 8 where he says, before Abraham was, I am. So in this case, the people are wanting to kill our Lord. But it's very interesting It's not because of Jesus' works that they want to kill him. It wasn't the case in John chapter 8. It's because of what he said. That is why they want to kill him. And it's the same in our passage today. Just as in John chapter 5, it's not only for his supposed breaking of the Sabbath laws that they want to kill him, but it's because the claims he makes about himself. And Jesus picks up on this in verse 32 when he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? He says, I've done good. 
I, which, which of my good works are you going to stone me for? They, they don't have any case against our Lord. They can't point to a work and say, well, that was sinful, or that was wrong, or that was unloving. There's nothing in the word and the works of our Lord that they can point to that they have grounds by which to stone him. But it's only by the words of our Lord that they are misunderstanding. They can't argue with his works. He's perfect. He has no sin. And yet, the only case that they can bring against him is by what he said. And we see that the reason they want to kill him is not because he's claiming to be a good man, but because he's claiming to be God. <laughs> right? They, 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 they say this in verse 33. They say, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. For blasphemy. For breaking the third commandment as we read about in our confession of sin this morning. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. You, being a man, make yourself God. That's blasphemy. And the truth is, if that was true, it would be blasphemy. If any of us in this room said, I'm God, (laughs) that would be blasphemy. That is breaking the third commandment. But we see this is not so with our Lord because He is who he says he is. And this is all taking place because of these six words that he said previously, I and the Father are one. This is why they reject him, because he's making himself equal with God. And this is no less true in our day, right? Why do people reject Christ? It's not because he was a good man. It's not because he was a moral person or an ethical genius People will say, Jesus, he was a great teacher. He, he taught great things. He taught people how to love their neighbor. He taught them how to walk in moral uprightness. The reason people reject Christ is not because he was a good man, but because he claimed to be God, God incarnate. And so whether it is a monotheistic Jew in the case of our passage or an unbelieving atheist, they cannot believe in the deity of Christ. They cannot believe that God would take on flesh, that God would become incarnate. And so this is why they seek to kill him. And this is why many in our day ignore Christ, reject Christ. They say, you know, you can keep your kind of moral commandments, but him as God, that's impossible. It's impossible. And so this is why they reject Christ. And this is why people in our day reject Christ. They want to snuff out the light. They don't want it to be true that God really did take on flesh. And the reason because of this is because we love our sin. (laughs) The perfect Christ exposes our sinfulness, and we we don't like this. And so we want to snuff out the light, and the light exposes our darkness. And so we see the response of these people is not that different from the response of people in our day, accusing Christ of blasphemy and seeking to put him to death. So this is the response of the people. They don't don't come to Christ in worship. They don't come to him in adoration. They come to him seeking to kill him. We turn now to our second point this morning. In verse 34, we see the response of our Lord. What is his response to these accusations and death threats, ultimately, what does our Lord say? Well, we see that Jesus answers their accusations with two things. He answers them with the Word of God 
and with the works of God. He answers them with two things. He answers them with the word of God and with the works of God. That Christ here is not only going to show how Scripture itself testifies to the validity of his claims, but how his very works show that he truly is the eternal Son of God, dwelling in perfect Trinitarian beatitude with the Father. So let's look at these two ways this morning. The first is we look at the Word of God. Jesus goes to the Old Testament to show the validity of his claims, and he goes to a very interesting passage. He goes to Psalm 82, and he's going to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. So the problem we see in this passage is the Jews are mad at Jesus. They're accusing him of blasphemy because he, being a man, has made himself God. In their minds, this is nothing short of blasphemy, nothing short of deserving death and stoning, as we read this morning. But Jesus is going to use the Word of God, the perfect, infallible Word of God that cannot be broken, that cannot be contradicted. He's going to use that to show them that He is who He says He is. He is the true Son of God and that His claims are not blasphemous, but true. And He's going to do this by quoting Psalm 82 and, as we said, making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And so in Psalm 82, it's important to realize that, as we said this morning, God is pictured as this divine judge over all the earth. He's the one who's perfect. He's seated in his divine counsel as the one that will bring judgment over all the earth. And in God's wisdom, he gave earthly judges power to judge. He gave earthly judges over Israel. He had set them in place. They were to image God, not only morally, but judicially. They were to in their judicial rule, image God. But we saw, as we read this morning in Psalm 82, that these earthly judges had failed. Instead of preserving justice, they preserved wickedness. Instead of doing that which is good, they did that which was evil. And in the psalm, God is rebuking these earthly judges for their failure and their injustice. But it's very interesting, in verse 6 of Psalm 82, he gives these earthly judges a divine title. He says, you are gods. We read that this morning. Verse 6 of Psalm 82 says, talking to the earthly judges, you are gods. Elohim. Which is actually the word that is used in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, Elohim made the heavens and the earth. So God is giving this divine title to earthly judges. And Jesus is using this to prove a point in John chapter 10. We should feel some kind of tension and some, some, some int- something's happening here. What is going on? Now, to be clear, this passage has been used by many to misuse or misunderstand what has what is being said, because it appears like God is calling these people gods, which should cause us to pause at least, right? He says, you are gods. Are there more gods than one? What is going on here? Well, this, this passage has been used, like I said, for many various heresies and heterodoxies. 
There's obviously the Mormon view of polytheism where there's multiple gods and you can become a god one day. All you got to do is work your way up to heaven and you can be a god just as God is God. This is Mormon polytheism. They will go to this verse. It says you are gods just like you can become a god. There's also another view called henotheism, which is basically the liberal conception that, there, that you can serve one God of many gods, right? You can serve your Jesus, but this person can serve Allah, this person can serve another person, and we can all just be happy in this kind of coexistence. This is, they'll go to places like this to say, well, there's more gods than one, you just might serve the God that you think is best. This even has been used to justify the Eastern Orthodox view of what they call theosis, which is this idea that believers in some sense can become God in this sort of deification or divinization. It's actually pretty confusing to get to the bottom of what they mean when they say that. But but regardless of that, all of these either reject the clear teaching of Scripture that there is only one true and living God, which is very clear from Isaiah 43, or they destroy or undermine the distinction between the creator and the creature, and they seek to kind of muddy that line. That's what all these views do. But the question still remains, <laughs> how do we understand this? How do we, what is Jesus saying here? What, what does this verse mean? And as we said, Jesus is not trying to show that there's more gods than one. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this how much more this? Or we could say it like this. This is what Jesus is saying. If God gives a divine title to earthly judges who are wicked and unjust, how much more should I, the Son of God, as the one consecrated and sent by the Father, the true judge of all the earth, how much more should I be identified as God? (laughs) If God can use a divine title for these earthly wicked judges, how much more do I deserve the title of the Son of God, the true God? Not just in analogy, but in reality. Basically, he's saying, you shouldn't have a problem with me calling myself God. (laughs) He's making this argument from Psalm 82 that because Scripture cannot be broken, he is using this title for man as he is to reflect God in his judicial ruling, how much more should Christ as the true Son of Man and Son of God, the second Adam, the image of the invisible God, how much more does he deserve the title of God? So Jesus here is not trying to prove that there are multiple gods, that you can become a god one day, right? That's not what's going on here. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's showing them that there is one true and living God and that Jesus is him. (laughs) Jesus is the one true and living God. Or as he said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, me. But Jesus not only gives the witness of the Word of God, testifying to who He is, but He also gives the witness of the Father in His works. That brings us to the second illustration that Jesus uses, the works of God. And we see this in verse 37 through 38. Jesus is testifying that His works, 
that are given to him by the Father show that he is truly the eternal Son of God and that he dwells in this perfect Trinitarian unity with the Father. And we see this in verse 37 through 38. He says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. He's saying, if I don't do the works, don't believe me. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't do the works of the Father, then don't believe what I say. But if you look to the works, you will see that I am who I say I am. My works are evidence. They're showing forth that I'm no phony. I'm not someone just in word, but also the Son of God in deed. That Christ here appeals to his works. He's saying, not only do I have obedience as the second Adam, the Son of God, in my active and passive obedience, but look to my miracles, my signs. Those are only things that God can do. Those things are not possible by man alone. And so he's giving these works as proof and evidence of his divinity, his eternal sonship, and his messianic identity as the Messiah. Or as John Gill said, I, lo- I love this, his works are those which none but God can do. <laughs> his works are those which none but God can do. He's evidencing by his works that he is who he said he is. He's pleading with them. He's calling them to believe his works. He's like, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. Believe that I am who I say I am. He's calling them to believe. He's showing his perfect Trinitarian unity and communion with the Father. And in verse 38b, Jesus says, So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This might sound odd to our ears. I don't think this is a verse that gets a lot of time for us to consider and think about. But in Trinitarian theology, This verse is describing what we call perichoresis, perichoresis, which is the perfect, eternal, and mutual indwelling of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This perfect, eternal indwelling, the Father in the Son, the Son in the Father, the Son in the Spirit. And that language, like I said, I don't think gets talked a lot about, and so to our ears, it's, it's what do we do with this passage? How do we understand these things? But classically in Trinitarian theology, this has been used to describe what we call perichoresis, that we cannot separate the persons, right? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So there is one true and living God, and there are three persons in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so while we need to distinguish between the Father and between the Son and between the Holy Spirit, right? The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, At the same time, we can't make that distinction a separation of the persons. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that there's this unity of God while maintaining the personal distinctions in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think it's best summarized in the Athanasian Creed where it says this, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, (laughs) right? 
neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So we don't collapse the persons into these multiple faces of God as modalism does. And we don't divide God up into three different parts or societies. We see that there is one true and living God who simply is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? This is what Trinitarian orthodoxy is, that God is one in nature, distinct in persons, equal in power, and perfect in communion, right? This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And Jesus is pointing to this and his works as evidence of his equality and his unity with the Father. It's exactly like what he did in John chapter 5. If you remember where he's proposedly breaking the Sabbath, and he says, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. He puts his working and the Father's working on the same level. (laughs) He's saying, my working is no different than the Father's working. My Father is working until now, I myself am working. But just as in John 5, instead of worshiping our Savior, the people seek to arrest and kill him, to put him to death, but we see that he's able to escape because his hour has not yet come. And in our closing verses, in verses 40 through 42, we see John in this kind of inclusio brings us all the way back to chapter 1 with John the Baptist. And we see that the witness of John the Baptist, that this truly is the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we see that this is true, that he's not, also, he's not only the Lamb of God, but he is also the Son of God. We see many believed in him. And we'll see as we go from John chapter 10, sort of a shift toward the close of what many call the book of signs, which is the first 12 chapters of John's gospel. And we'll see this shift as we get to the final sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, this ultimate sign of our Lord of his power and authority over death. But as we um, contemplate this passage and we begin to think about how to apply um, John chapter 10, couple things to point out this morning. The first thing is this, that Jesus truly is the incarnate Son of God. He's the Logos of John chapter 1, the Word who is not only with God, but who is God. He really is the Word of God, one with the Father in His essence, distinct in His person, equal in power and glory, and dwelling in perfect and eternal Trinitarian communion. There's no shortage of evidence for this in John's gospel. You can just open up John's gospel, put your finger somewhere, and find an evidence for the deity of Christ, that he is the eternal Son of God. And if we go to the end of John's gospel, we know why he wrote this gospel. Why? So that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, right? The anointed servant of the Lord promised in the Old Testament, but not just the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name, eternal, everlasting life. This is why John wrote his gospel. So we wouldn't just believe Jesus is just a man who did good things, who was a good example, but that he is the incarnate Son of God, that he has finished the work that was sent that he was sent for, that he was sent by the Father to do, and by his divine nature, he's able to apply the benefits that he won to his people.
people. He is the Son of God. But the second thing I wanted to pull out this morning is just this kind of little parenthetical phrase our Lord uses in verse 35. He says this, Scripture cannot be broken. (laughs) Scripture cannot be broken. That our Lord here affirms what we confess is the infallibility of the Scriptures. The infallibility of Holy Scripture. That it's unable to err. It doesn't have any errors and it's unable to err because it's God's Word. (laughs) It's breathed out by Him. And so people will say, the Scriptures never say that it's infallible. The Scriptures never say that it's perfect. Jesus right here says, Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be contradicted. It cannot error. It has no faults. It is the only sufficient thing, not only that we need for faith and obedience, but it is perfect. It has no errors. It can be tested. It can be searched. But because it is God's Word, we can believe it and trust it and hold fast to it. We don't have to be afraid of seemingly contradictory things. We can trust that it is God's Word, that He has written it, breathed it out, and given it to us, and inscripturated it for our benefit. But the last thing I wanted to look at this morning is a very sobering thing. And we see in this passage, as we kind of come to the end of Jesus' public ministry in John's Gospel, we see the hatred that unbelieving man has toward Christ and His church. We see the hatred that unbelieving man ha- that cr- that unbelieving man has toward Christ and his church. That these people, in their sin, they want to put to death the Lord of glory. They want to kill the perfect Lamb of God. They want to snuff out the light of the world. And as we talked about, this is the response of unbelief. It doesn't like the light. It loves the darkness and hates the light. Whether it's Christ himself, as we see in this passage, or his church today, the world seeks to hide itself from the light and snuff out the light. It doesn't like the light because the light exposes the evil works that are happening. So in our day, this this comes about by persecution, by suffering. People do not like the church of Christ because it preaches the truth. It preaches Christ as the only way to salvation. The world does not like this, and it will sneak, it will seek to snuff out this light of God's people. But it's very interesting. We see here in our passage that these people are picking up stones and rocks to kill the Lamb of God who never sinned. They're, can you imagine that? The perfect Son of God, they're picking up rocks to throw at Him, to put Him to death. And even though they will not succeed here in John chapter 10, they will crucify the only Son of God. And by the end of John's gospel, we will see that he is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, as we sang about. He suffers on the cross for his people, undergoing the very wrath and curse of God. But it is actually by this very means that God has ordained to save His people. By the suffering of the Son, many will be made righteous. 
And those who deserve death because of their sin and their blasphemy are made right before God because of this perfect lamb that is put to death. Because of his work, he was sent by the Father to do the work and he completed it. And by his spirit now, his people are renewed in the image of the Son, right? By faith alone, we are united to Christ and receive all his benefits. And as we go to the end of the scriptures, In John's last book, in the book of Revelation, we see that for all those who are not in Christ, that when he returns as the true judge, who has no faults, who perfectly upholds justice, for all those that are not in Christ, there will be stones, but it will be because they're calling them to fall upon them. We read about this in in Revelation chapter 6. It says this, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? On the last day, there are rocks, but they are calling them to fall upon themselves because they did not trust in the only Son of God. And the question remains, who can stand? But we see as we go through the book of Revelation that those that are able to stand are only those who have taken their filthy garments and washed them in the blood of the Lamb. That's our only hope this morning, is washing our robes that are filthy in the blood of the Lamb and trusting in Him who took the death that we deserve. So let's pray and thank God for His grace this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mercy and grace in Christ, that He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be able to stand before the holy God of the universe, not because of our works, but because of yours, and that the sin and punishment that our sin earned was exhausted on the cross by the perfect incarnate Son of God who took our sin, took our shame, and exhausted the wrath that we deserve, and now gives us the gift of his perfect righteousness so that we might dwell with you forever. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to trust in this gospel and in this gospel alone, not the gospel that says that we can become God someday, that we can do this or do that, but trusting in the one true and living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in the fullness of time sent his Son, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Not sons and daughters by birth, but adopted into God's family. We ask and pray that you would strengthen us this morning, that you would um, encourage our souls by these truths, and we would lean and rest on Christ alone for salvation. We need your help to do this, and we pray and ask that you would do these things in Christ's name, and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.